0: Shalom and welcome to Product Nation, a weekly podcast by product managers in Silicon Valley, covering how tech products get created and executed by some of the most accomplished product experts in the world. I'm Ofir Barav, and today with me and my co-host Nir Paz, and welcome Ophir Nir Machadash.
1: Good offer, grinding, still working from home, hoping for better days. What's new with you? Just finished an amazing
0: series that I highly recommend. They Kind of bizarre that I only got to it finally, but Man in the High Castle by Amazon Prime, phenomenal. I'm so into that genre of, I forget what it's called. It's kind of like a parallel history. It's like a what if kind of situation. And the beauty here is that they put you in a world that really makes you ask a lot of questions. In this case, it's about the national socialists, the Nazis, but it takes you into a world of what if, and I don't want to do any spoilers here, But for anybody listening to this, if you're into this genre, kind of like Westworld, this is for you. And watch all four seasons. It's crazy good. It just makes you rethink everything. And I think it's very educational, actually. So that said, yeah, really excited here to have Ophir Eyal. Ophir, mashup, huh? Oh, it's good. Thank you for having me. Great. And thanks uh, for joining us. So you just finished the weekend over there in Israel. What's new over there? How's life in Israel?
2: So, with COVID-19, it's like we say in our government, it's the, the accordion. We're expanding and contracting. So now we're in somewhat contracting, getting back to where we were a couple of months back. We're falling back. But it looks like it's going to be like this for quite a while, so I'm already used to it.
0: Okay. And uh, where are you based in Israel?
2: So I live in Tel Aviv. Our offices are just outside Tel Aviv in uh, the lovely block.
0: Great. And Ophir, can you tell us about your background today? You are heading product for Viber and you manage a bunch of product managers that manage other teams. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do?
2: Sure. So currently my, my title at Viber is the chief operations officer. So I manage the senior product directors, our HR in Israel, our support, our UX, our organization, our content, our creative. Prior to working at Viber, I actually started, my romance with technology started actually in high school. I studied programming in high school before it became uh, kind of a common to study such things uh, before your professional life. Then straight after the army started working in QA, from QA to some management, product management, project management, before product management was very popular as a, a, as a domain. And prior to Viber, I worked at Citi, Citibank, where they have an innovation center in Tel Aviv, and that's where I kind of got to learn mobile apps, mobile application, and that kind of brought me into the mobile world. And I'm at Viber for six years now.
0: And at Viber, how big's your team?
2: So overall, the responsibility is somewhere like 70 people. Out of them, it's 12 product managers seven UX designers. So that that would be the core product kind of teams, the product managers and the UX designers. But all all in all, all the teams I manage is like 70 people.
0: So just for context, if you could share with us uh, maybe a point in time, something at the scale of Viber, I believe you mentioned there's hundreds of millions of users. Give us an anecdote of what it was like to A, pick a, a product feature, B, test it, C, change directions. Okay.
2: We're celebrating 10 years this December. So as an app, we're one of the few early apps. And if you can remember 10 years back, the mobile app economy wasn't as progressive as it is today. So all the the testing tools, all the analytics tools weren't as advanced as today. So when we started, actually, we did measure our main KPIs, but things like A-B testing were, were science fiction in, in the scale where Viber operate. Obviously today we're in a different position, but... If we go back like five years in the past, we had this very heated product discussion of whether we should build a feature that allows users to delete a message after they already sent it. Nowadays, it's obvious. All our competitors have this feature, and few know that actually we were the first to introduce this. And when you're the first to introduce a new functionality, the decision isn't as obvious like it might seem today. Or in other words, you don't always have the eureka moment in real time and the discussion specifically around the ability to allow users to delete a message after it's already been sent there were pros and cons there were voices against this feature in the product team and voice pro this feature people against said, well this is instant messaging the whole beauty of it is it is that it's casual and you don't need to edit or delete your messages and if you send something by mistake that's part of the charm of an instant messaging system well the the voices pro this feature said well the the, the, price of an error is very is very high. If you send the wrong message to the wrong person, it could be very embarrassing and, and catastrophic to some relationships. And eventually we decided to release this feature and, and it was a huge success. And now we can say that practically every messaging app has this feature. But again, in real time, it wasn't as obvious if we're doing something positive or negative, if we're ruining, quote unquote, the, the casualness of... A messaging app if we're turning it into something different uh, or if we're just improving our user's life. So um, I'm actually
0: really curious if, if I may. So, so you're saying almost every messaging app has it but I can think of one that doesn't the main one and I'm curious why they don't. It's uh, iMessage by Apple. So how could it be that uh, four years into this and exactly like you said you can still make those mistakes those horrific mistake, mistakes or send the wrong message to the wrong person you can't delete it uh, why is it that there's such late adopters for something so obvious, do you think?
2: So it's a good question. I actually don't know the exact answer, but I could guess it's related to technology because iMessages has their own proprietary technology. It's similar to SMS. And I don't think it's as simple as, as when you do it on voice over IP apps uh, over the top. So maybe it's related to a technological barrier.
0: Yeah. It yeah. could very well be interesting. Can you deliver a little bit more about that moment in time? How scary was it when you finally went forward or did you A/B test it?
2: Yeah. So actually when we released that feature, our AB testing solution was in its diapers and it wasn't as progressive as today. So we were semi-blind, you can say. And it is a very tough call to make, not just this, but when you release a mobile app and Viber has hundreds of millions of users, especially when your users are using an app, which sometimes can take a week up to, to when you need to release a fix. This fix can be pending approval from the Apple or Google for days or sometimes weeks. So the, the margin for error is very small and the cost of an error could be very costly because again, theoretically, you're sending this satellite into space and you cannot fix it until it's fully deployed. So we had to take a lot of decisions that are, we call them gut-based decisions. Obviously it's always good to, to use the data when you can, but not always you have the full data, not always you have the complete data, not always you're able to do that. So at the end of the day, and especially in our early days, we had to make these tough decisions luckily for us,
0: this one was the right call. You mentioned there was something about a free button, can you, can you elaborate on that a little
2: So not all decisions are, are smart decisions. Sometimes we, we obviously made some mistakes. The next mistake is something that I call it, the reason we made this is because we assumed that something that is clear to us as product managers, as people using the app, is clear to our users. So Viber, for those of you who don't know, is is a free messaging app. and called call app. Viber calls and Viber messages between Viber users is always free, has always been free, and will always be free. We assumed that since we know this, it would be obvious to our users. So we, at one point in time, decided to take the action buttons that have clear text on them that says free call and free message, we decided to do a UX overhaul to that screen, and we actually changed the buttons from saying free call and free message to icons. So we omitted the the word free, and we soon saw a, a decrease that very clearly shows that users are pressing these buttons less or making less calls and less messages because at that point in time, they're no longer certain if this feature is free or not, And we obviously rolled back, and and that was
0: a a mistake that we
2: learned from since. Fantastic.
0: I want to change gears real quick here and ask you about just the way that you organize yourselves over there at, at Viber. What does it look like? What's the difference between the different use cases of product management?
2: Okay, so like I said, we have 12 product managers, and in an ideal world, each product manager would work on his own domain or, or part of the app and have his own dedicated team of developers and designers and QA people. So the team would be organized organically around a specific domain or sub part of the app. In reality, it doesn't work like that in Viber. At the end of the day, it is a single app or, or, or a single functionality where we're constantly evolving. So what we do is We roughly break our product team into two types of product managers. We have the product managers that are working in what we call units, which is similar to the squads format where where it's a dedicated team that's working on a dedicated topic. And it's basically the same people grinding the same KPIs in the same areas in the app. And then for all the other things, we have something like uh, 60% of the team working on something like a taxi queue where we have uh, it's it's called, we call it feature driven development where or FDD, where we prioritize our backlog based on feature priority. And then each product manager would take the upcoming task or upcoming feature and spec it, design it, work with the designers, work with the implementation team, release it and then move on to the next item. So it's basically whoever is available text takes the next item from the list worked well for us for a certain amount of time, it it allowed us to release features like some sort of machine, like a feature uh, releasing machine. And we've learned that although advantages in speed, we do see disadvantages in lack of domains around. So first of all, the fact is once you, if you work on a feature and you released it, and then you're working on the next feature, you're not monitoring the stats. APIs and usage of the feature you just released. So the entire process of revisiting features and adjusting them wasn't working optimal. And secondly, since each of the product managers could find themselves working on a different area or a different zone of the app, then we are losing synchronization, we're losing collaboration, we're losing the the in-depth knowledge of a specific domain. What we're doing in the past weeks is trying some sort of hybrid approach where we kind of break down the application into something like 10 domains. Domain could be first time user experience. It could be onboarding, it could be a certain function in the app. And then we assign these domains to each product manager where we expect that this would contribute to the fact that the product manager would be able to impact this domain and, and benefit from it for the long
0: term. I'm curious about what you use for software to be able to get everybody to manage people. And more importantly, how do you set it up for success? Like, how do you get the, this Listen, Because you have to constantly prioritize and reprioritize. Does every single detail come to you? Do you have to give it a check? Do you have a system that works even when you're not giving it a check? Like, can you talk a little bit about the granular?
2: Yeah. So on, on, a, on the lowest level of granularity, we use JIRA where, where we report our bugs and, and the tasks that the developer is working on as an item in JIRA and they have with the statuses. So that allows us the, kind of the most granular sand level uh, system. When we go a bit higher in the hierarchy of tasks, we use Monday. We're actually one of the first. We're using Monday for five years now. And the way we use it is we also split the different types of tasks into different types of boards. So the board would typically contain tasks of the same size. So for example, when, when we prioritize as management, we prioritize Viber's high level roadmap, we use what we call the high level roadmap board, which contains only items that are big enough to discuss or significant enough to discuss in this form. We don't discuss all the hundreds and tens of small items. But when the actual product teams and and development implementation teams they work on, they use different boards. They use detailed boards where actually every item that goes into the manufacturing floor, into development, has a representation on the board. And we actually split these boards into upcoming, in progress, in QA, released. So we use different levels and it, it creates more order for us, although you can it's sometimes it's kind of lose yourself with, with a multitude of boards, but all in all, it works for us.
0: So with regards to this issue right now of prioritizing, reprioritizing, those hundreds of temporary sort of features that come up, how do you bubble up the priority? Do you, is, is this something that your directors or some other function in the company can take care of? Or are you centralizing everything in such a way that it comes at least through you, even if it's in the tiniest of features? Where you need to approve it, and if so, how do you juggle all that?
2: So yeah, we I definitely don't prioritize everything we do. It's simply ineffective. The, the system we found is that we kind of break up the types of features into their size rather than their domain or in which area they rely. So, if we if something is defined as a small task, we're talking about days of development and not weeks or months, then the the, the product directors and then engineering directors they would prioritize it on their own without having to escalate to management and that allows us to breathe and make progress because a lot of the, the tens of, of of items we release every version are these small things. And if, if we, we wouldn't have allowed the senior directors to prioritize them this on themselves, we would have come to a situation where we're stuck or we, we, we have, we're, we're choking a lot of small businesses and a lot of small initiatives around the company. That's why we enable this process of self-prioritization. On the what we call the high level roadmap, items that are, we're talking about weeks or months of development rather than days, that is done with myself, the CEO, or other executives in a uh, meeting we have every two or three weeks.
0: Any heroic stories about something that you thought was going to be ready in a month and turned out to take, I don't know, three months instead? I and mean, what do you do?
2: So we, ha- we have a bunch of cases like this where, where we thought something is going to be very short and it ended up being more. It hurts the most when you're working on something for literally months, if not almost more than a year, and then your competitors beat you to market in a month or two. It happened to us with our biggest competitor when we introduced uh, end-to-end encryption. It happened to us. So we were working on this thing for months and then they released it a couple of weeks before us. So it's not an easy moment. We try to learn from these things. What we do today is we break these items down to the to the most granular deliverable pieces. And we, even though it's a, it's a mobile app that has releases every two weeks, we try to ship these items, even if they're not ready, even if they're not exposed to users, but we do try to ship them so we have better control over the bigger picture.
1: So, Ophir, uh, I have a quick question about hiring in general. So the understanding is that all product managers are working on the same things at the same, basically, in, in a queue. How do you actually make a hiring decision when you bring somebody on board? You basically need to find somebody that, is a, a, that specializes in everything.
2: So what we don't do is what we did in the past where we hire somebody and we tell him on, on what specific product he's going to work on because we, we had have, we have a true story where we hired somebody to work on the iPad app, the iPad version of Viber. And by the time he was hired, we decided to postpone this. So the person didn't actually work on the app he was hired for. So we hire people to the product management team. They're not, we don't designate them to a specific uh, platform or product. It is true that when we would need people with specific specialities, we would, for example, in monetization or ads, we would prefer to hire somebody with the relevant background. But typically what we do in this cases is is we take people that work, have experience in B2C, in UX. And what I found to be most important in these cases is is when I hire, I look for intelligence, motivation, and a high threshold of frustration. Meaning the person isn't frustrated quickly, or he's very resilient. And, And when you find a combination of intelligence, motivation, and resilience, it Typically, in almost all cases, we, we have good hires, meaning we have people that can learn the relevant product in which they're assigned now, can work together as a team, and eventually uh, be retained well in the company. I'm very proud of the fact that most of our product managers work in Viber for four, five, six,
0: seven years now. What is it that you can query to obtain a satisfaction over intelligence and over resilience? Like, What can you possibly do in a matter of 30-minute interview?
2: So typically my interviews would be longer, would be more than an hour, an hour, an hour and a half. Before COVID, we we would do them in person, so it's it's very important to kind of see the the, the body language of the the applicant. For resilience, I usually try to take the candidate to a place where he was uh, frustrated in the past and, and ask him to tell me how he managed this frustration. And when you take person to a point in his time where he was frustrated, you would typically see in his responses and his body language, if he's able to contain this frustration or not. So usually you can see tells in the behavior and how he chooses to tell the story from his position versus the, the other part. One question I, I like to ask, please describe a situation where you were in a conflict with a human interface, with your colleague, with your boss, with somebody from a different department. And try to to kind of give me an example of, of how this conflict was resolved. And, and you can learn a lot in, in, about somebody when, when he tells you about a conflict he has with, with an interface and how it was resolved.
0: Are there subtleties where sometimes during an interview, a red flag comes up for you? Mm-hmm. Months later, it shows up in a really bad way and you go, ah, I should have thought about that. Does that happen a lot or...
2: Or yeah it, it used to happen a lot in the early days today what I do in this cases is, is and and you've touched the point exactly today in those interviews what I what I tell all the guys that are new managers for interviews is sh- the purpose of an interview is not to have a fun and pleasant conversation obviously the interview should be pleasant because you want the person to work with you but if a red flag is raised, don't drive around it. Don't go around it. If something, if you think there's an issue here, then press on this issue. Ask about it. Dig deep into this because the either person can either decrease or, or it can either eliminate the red flag or it can make it higher. Um, but try not to drive around it. And, and again, if you're concerned that somebody has a, I don't know a temper or something, and try to, to make the interview, the tempo of the interview, to be a bit higher to see if he loses his tempo, for example. That's, that's one Obviously, I'm not sitting and trying to aggravate my candidate. That, that is one example. And you could do the same for people that, again, any, any quality you would not want, somebody rushing into decisions, somebody uh, saying something and not being accountable for what he just said. Or try to find, to go in circles, find these red flags, and when you find them, don't move... Um, to the next stage in the interview until you have an answer. Is this really a red flag or not?
0: Got it. So for example, let's say candidate X shows up and they let's say let's take your your example. Under pressure, they crumble. And you sort of get the inkling that, hey, this is this is happening. You could resolve it. Do you then call them back in to then press on that if you love them for everything else? Is that kind of the idea?
2: Well, That totally depends on the type of company I would hire for. So in some companies, you could have a top performer. If you need a specialty person in a special, you would maybe look the other way if you have a top performer that's losing it every now and then because it's for the greater good. For a company like us in our structure and the way we work, it's much more devastating for the teamwork if we have somebody that, that has a tendency to lose it. So in this specific case, if somebody has a temporary issue or if somebody uh, doesn't keep his collegiality, if you, if you call it, it's, it's an immediate, it's a definite no-no for us. We don't proceed. Yep.
0: What about resilience? How do you check for that?
2: So resilience is a lot of the times people tend to think that if you passed a lot of, if you skipped a lot of positions in your career, if, if you'd say you see somebody move between jobs every six months, that his resilience is low. So I try not to be biased by the, the LinkedIn profile or the CV. I do try to find the, the, the person's life story. So I would try to see if this person has encountered any difficulties in his own life. So if, if a certain person, and, and obviously the, the, an interview is a professional discussion, it's not a personal discussion, so we don't go on talking about childhood and stuff like that. But I do try to find, has this person encountered difficulties in his life that made him stronger and resilient? And usually if I don't find that very quickly, if I see that this person kind of was, was spoon fed with the, the silver spoons, I, I, if I don't find the place where his, his difficult background, usually that will also be a no but it's mainly having a, a, a conversation, trying again, to understand, has this person encountered difficulties and how, by the way, parents make great candidates for that because this person has had difficulties, has been in a stressful situation, has had a hard time sleeping sometimes. So automatically the, rel- the resilience of parents would be higher. Again, people that come from rough backgrounds, I don't know, anything from, I don't know, divorced parents or, or whatever, usually gets you points for resilience in my book.
1: How do you think about home exercises when you interview a candidate? What do you think about that? I mean, it's a pretty heated debate, especially here in the Bay Area, by the way. But are you for it, against it, and why really?
2: Yeah. So we use home exercises Viber. I've used them throughout the career. So it won't be the deciding factor, but... If you hire a product manager, which is somebody that needs to know how to express themselves using words and using sketches, the person can tick all the boxes. Okay. He can be resilient. He can be intelligent. He can be motivated, but a PM has another X factor that you could not have, but have all the other three, which is the ability to take a blank canvas or a blank piece of paper and put your thoughts to it. A lot of people, it's easy for them to take somebody else's idea and improve it or say where it's wrong or it's working. But to create something from scratch, which is not code, which in this case is a concept, a mockup, or a spec is something I found that you either have this or not. A lot of people are terrified of starting with a blank page. So I found that the exercise is extremely helpful to A, understand can this person start, Thinking, uh, thinking, a thought process from, from a blank page. That's one. Secondly, I, I'd like to see how he cr- expresses himself in English, the words he chooses. And by the way, there is no magic number. So theoretically, if an exercise is too long and this person doesn't doesn't know how to get to the point, you can tell that the person doesn't get into the details. So there isn't a magic number of on the number of pages I expect to see. There isn't a magic number in, in, or a magic Format. I could get a mock-up that is made in PowerPoint and doesn't look anything like the screen, but it still shows a good thought process. Hiring a product manager without seeing how this person thinks in writing and in expressing himself visually is too much of a gamble. So we use them and I found them super helpful. But by the way, if you go and look at all the exams of the PMs that were hired, you would see that there is practically no thread between them. They don't look like each other at all but each of them have this thing where you can see, okay, this person gave it some thought and and his thought process is in the right place.
0: I still want to go one level in on intelligence. How do you hire for that?
2: So intelligence is a lot with, when you hire PMs, a lot of time it would be emotional intelligence. Again, the PM role is such a difficult role. I remember when I started, I thought, oh, this is cool. You, you can do a little of anything. You have to, You can do a little mock-ups. You can do a little um, specs. You can talk to people. It's the dream job. You can do a little of everything. The more we work at this, we see it's, it's actually, maybe it's the hardest job ever because you need to be a master of all. You need to be good with people. You need to be good with numbers. You need to be good with UX. You need to, to see the small and big picture. You need to zoom in and out in your thought process. But the the, the the emotional intelligence is key here. How do you test for emotional intelligence? What I like to see is this person sitting across me. Does he use his emotional intelligence to reach out to me? So is he making eye contact? Is he attention to when I start to lose my kind of patience when he's talking about something too much and he's switching subject? It is, how, how much is he paying attention to the signs I'm trying to give him without being verbal? And and again, we're talking about a conversation which could be an hour and a half or two hours. In that period of time, if you haven't made some sort of connection between you, it means. And I try to have my reset my 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 kind of uh, receptors open. If we haven't been able to to make some sort of connection, it usually tells me that the person's in, in, uh, emotional intelligence isn't super high. And with with regular intelligence, you can tell by by sometimes how how deep a person would go into a subject because if some, somebody is not confident in something, he would sometimes go over into details to try and compensate the words he would use. So again, some, sometimes people would try to use words that are a bit higher in the jargon uh, to try and appear to be more intelligent, which actually applies for less intelligence because they're trying. And it's just, I guess it's experience. with By the way, with quantifiable intelligence or with regular intelligence, the easiest It's just trying to see where the person studied, which, by the way, if if it's it's a place where it's hard to get in and it's hard to graduate from, you also get a tick on the resilience because it wasn't simple graduating from this. But it's not written in stone. We have people who who, we, we hired as PMs which didn't graduate from university at all. And I just try to find a different anchor for their intelligence.
0: So final one is motivation. How do you hire for that?
2: Motivation would probably be the easiest. So try to look for the fire in somebody's eyes, the passion, how he speaks about something. And usually motivation and resilience would go together because when you're not motivated, every little boundary would get you down. And when you're super motivated, you can climb walls, you can break through walls. And by the way, I saw that motivation is, from my experience, something that's intrinsic in a sense like... It's not that you're working on an interesting product and you're super motivated, and then you're working on a product that's not interesting and you're not motivated. A motivated person is typically motivated by working at anything he does. He just wants to be good, to do the best in everything he does. So I would ask about past experience at work. I would try to ask about the setbacks. I would try to see how the person overcame these setbacks. Typically, I don't expect to see an answer when the setback came. I asked the person what he did they do in the setback and, and if the answer was well I went to my boss I told him there's a problem here he said we can't do anything and we abandoned the product so, or the project that's an answer I don't expect to hear Th- that's an issue with both resilience and motivation and on the other hand I don't expect somebody to say well I went to my boss's office I banged on his desk and I told him I'm not leaving your office until we do my idea so I'm not looking for that also because that's a problem with emotional intelligence so I'm looking for the person who has the motivation to do things, but to do the things in the way that the organization can do them. So again, it's if a certain organization, you need to buy the the buy-in of all the stakeholders. And in order to do that, maybe you need to have meetings with different stakeholders at different times. And maybe one meeting is face-to-face and the other meeting is over a deck and the other is with numbers. If you're motivated enough, you would do all these things just because you want to reach your goal which is in this case, in this example, to execute your feature or or to progress your project. So again, typically asking about past failures, past setbacks, seeing and asking how the candidate responded when he saw these setbacks would tell you a lot about
0: his motivation. Just a quick word about distant work. Do you find that solutions like Zoom or maybe your own solution, Viber uh, video, do you find that you have more frequent touch points how do you communicate the presence? It's like like the being there takes a whole other meaning. So how do you do that? So there's a bit of duality
2: or duplicity towards COVID and, and using Zoom. So on one hand, we're saving a lot of time because we're not commuting to the office. We don't waste time in traffic. We're, we have all this time that was freed up. But on the other hand, we're far less efficient because if you would theoretically could grab somebody in the cafeteria or in the corridor and just... No, throw in a word or two, you're already on par, you're already under understanding. But in this world, you need to, to send this guy up. You need to send the person a message first because we don't call, we don't do a video conference without announcing it, right? We're in the office, you can just go up to, some, to somebody's desk. So you have to announce, you have to schedule time, and then you have to go on, on a video conference meeting. So in a lot of places, you can see that you actually spend more energy and more time to get the same results. So again, we gain something with traffic, with staying at home, but we lose a lot in, in these informal kind of meetings, these corridor meetings, get going up to somebody's desk, because I'm a people person, it's easier for me to motivate or to get my message across when I'm sitting across physically to somebody, uh, looking at him, reacting to his body language. And it's harder for me and my manager, by the way, they all say the same thing. We have to invest a lot more energy to get the same level of outcome when we're using video conferences. It's a good question. So I guess the answer is, since we're not going to go back to five days in the office, that's obvious, right? The world isn't going to go backwards. It's probably going to go forward. The kind of the X in this equation is what other tools or what other methods would be used to motivate and reach out to people because obviously using a conference call isn't as effective as uh, reaching out to somebody. Uh, At this point in time, I don't have the answer. I just know that we're not going back and and the current situation isn't ideal.
0: I'm gonna put a shameless plug-in to my company. We're working exactly on that problem, but in a completely different dimension, inside VR. but we should stay in touch about that and I'm more than happy to talk to you about about that uh, afterwards. Uh, it's more about the presence, right? In, in the end, what you want is you want people to be productive, right? I mean, that as a company, you want to achieve your goals and, and be able to get there on the schedule. And it's really tough when you're at a distance, especially when you're managing teams. It's really tough to understand where somebody's productive and when, when somebody's not. But when you have a situation where people are always on, it gets really interesting. Anyway, it's for a whole other conversation.
1: So... Now for our uh, special corner, assume you have all the resources in the world and no constraint, and you can just go and build anything, any product that you would like. What are you actually going to build and why that product specifically?
2: Cool. This is a cool exercise. I like it. So my other passion besides instant messaging and mobile apps is the automotive industry. I'm specifically or particularly fascinated by the places where the digital meets the physical. And we see this in apps all the time, where apps kind of, they bleed into the physical domain, into the physical space. So in another life, in utilizing this passion for the automotive industry, I, I think I would do an app where you drive your car and records everything you're driving. And then you can view a video. But the video is actually something like a video game where you have a chase camera, kind of like a drone that just filmed you driving. And then it gives you tip tips on kind of competitive driving. So this is for racetracks and stuff like that, where it would give you like in video games, where you see the corners, where you have this, this green strip that tells you how to take the corner. So theoretically you could see a video of your actual turns and see the optimal turns after you finished the recording. But again, from the bird's eye, from what we call the chase view in, in gaming, which I think is cool. It's kind of seeing yourself driving like it was in a video game. The interesting thing to do this is without a drone, like using some sort of machine learning. Kind of, You would use the, the camera feed from the front-facing camera, but you would change the view to be a,
0: a drone view using artificial means. Wow, that's amazing, actually. <laughs> that really is amazing. But you say all, all from the point of view how to make the driving more effective, efficient like that, right?
2: Yeah, more sportiness. yeah. More competitive. So it's just a product for, for people who like to who would like to improve their, their professional
1: driving skills.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I can also think about it as a means for uh people that just don't know how to drive. And maybe yeah. they see.
0: that also could be good. Well, fantastic conversation here with Ophelia. Thank you so much for your time. Neil, thank you. And from here from Silicon Valley to Israel, thank you again and have a great day. Thanks guys.